Hey everyone, how's it going? It's Connor. It's the podcast. This is Money and Plants. I am delighted to bring another episode to you today. This is episode number 30. Over the last 15 months, I have had some wonderful conversations. The whole idea of the podcast is to share information, right? To share information and ideas that hopefully might educate and empower and maybe even inspire you and me to make better decisions in our own life. That's the whole idea of the show and thankfully it is going brilliantly well thus far. In this episode, I'm returning to a topic that I've spoken about twice before in Money and Plants. On episode 24, I spoke to Seamus McGuinness about Ireland, Northern Ireland, who is better off, people who live in the Republic of Ireland or people who live in Northern Ireland. That was episode 24. It was one of my most popular episodes in this project. And if you're interested in reunification in the Irish unity discussion, I would encourage you to nip back to episode 24 and check it out. In episode 25, I had a wonderful conversation with Jim O'Callaghan. Who is Jim O'Callaghan? Well, the bookies think he might be the new leader of Fianna Fáil. Maybe sooner than you think. That's who Jim is. He's a barrister. I really enjoyed the conversation with Jim. Very easy to talk to. He's very knowledgeable on Northern Ireland. But a couple of months ago, Jim wrote a paper titled The Political, Economic and Legal Consequences of Irish Reunification. That's where Jim was setting out his ideas of how he thought if there was a reunification in the island of Ireland, how all of that would play out. Again, that was one of the more popular episodes in the show. So with episode number 30 and in this conversation, I'm talking about something that really got my attention probably about five years ago. Because about five years ago, I was talking to the then finance minister of the uh, executive and we were having this conversation around the subvention. So what is the subvention? Well, the subvention is sort of the money that the British government pay to Northern Ireland to keep the lights on. And to keep it really simple, it costs in around £28 billion to run Northern Ireland every single year. And we seem to collect, based on the figures of 2019, we collect about £18.5 billion in taxes and rates and all of that. But there is a shortfall, and the shortfall is allegedly £9.5 billion in around £10 billion. And I suppose whenever I was talking to the then finance minister at that time, he was suggesting to me that, you know, that's not the actual figure. It's, it's nowhere near that level. It's actually much less. And a couple of years later, I was talking to another finance minister and I, and I said to him, what's the story with this subvention? Is it really £10 billion, £9.5, billion? And again, it was his view that it, it's actually not. And over the last 12 months, as I've tried to uh, increase my knowledge in this area, there are now many people who are saying that actually this subvention is, is closer to 5 billion than 10 billion. And the reason why I think this is really, really important is because you know most people accept, even Peter Robinson ex- ex- accepts that there's probably going to be a Irish unity referendum on the island of Ireland, certainly within the next 10 years. And one of the most important parts of that conversation is a starting point would be trying to figure out, well, actually, what does it cost right now, Northern Ireland, what is the cost of Northern Ireland to the British Exchequer? Because if there is Irish unity, then the new island of Ireland, that new constitution, would have to uh, pay for Northern Ireland. And as Northern Ireland is budget uh, is in deficit, and has been, as you're going to hear in the, in the podcast, over 80 years, then that cost will have to be picked up by the new Irish government. So it's really, really important then from a financial due diligence point of view that we actually understand what that number is in real terms. So look, I had a conversation earlier this week with John Doyle. John is, he's a great guy. Um, He's been working in this space for many years. And what he has done is over the last nine months, he has been lifting the bonnet in this and he's been trying to figure out what is the actual real figure that might carry over in the event of Irish unity. So that's the whole idea. That's the basis and the context behind this conversation. What I'm going to do is I'm going to shut up now. I'm going to play the tape. Have a listen to this conversation. We do get into the big ticket items. I thought it was really interesting. I hope you do too. And what I'll do is I'll sum up at the end of the conversation. So here we go. Let's roll the tape. Over the last 10 years, 
The world of banking has been completely disrupted. Banks continue to contract, continue to sell non-performing loans, and what that has caused is an ongoing liquidity crisis right across these islands. In 2016, we decided to try and solve this problem or do something that would help businesses access money. We introduced a new company called ClearPath Finance. And over the last four years, we have introduced more than 200 million pounds of new money into the economy. With over 70 different lenders on the platform, ClearPath Finance is well situated to help you and your business. www.clearpathfinance.com Check them out. John, good morning. You're very welcome to Money and Plants. How are you keeping? Uh, very good. Glad to be here, Connor. So thanks for the invitation. No, oh, excellent. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to speaking to you um, this morning and sharing it with my audience. But just before we get going, you are the director of DCU Institute for International Conflict Resolution and Reconstruction. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, so I suppose a long title uh, formed by a committee, but I suppose we're trying to emphasize the fact is, you know, today a peace agreement is signed is the beginning of a process, as we well know in Ireland. So it's to sort of emphasize it's, it's a long run process. So it's not simply a being there, done that, and move on to the next one. So hence the reconstruction added to the end of the more traditional title. Being, being based in, in Ireland and in the title International Conflict Resolution, I'm, I'm sure there's no, uh, there's plenty of work. Yeah, it's sort of you know, people from all over the world obviously come to Ireland, north and south. Um, they're interested in what goes on. I mean, we can see the details of all the things we haven't done right or we haven't done at all. But if you're coming from somewhere like the Middle East or Kashmir or Sri Lanka, like Northern Ireland just seems like done, dusted, solved uh, compared to the troubles they're going through. So there's a lot of interest in it. And then it allows us the opportunity to get into the detail of other places, things they've done better or worse than us. And, and hopefully we all learn from that. I think it's one of the fascinating things, actually. I think it's over 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement. And um, as, I've, as I've sort of delved into this in the last sort of 12, 15 months through the podcast and some guests, I mean, we haven't actually, there's an argument to say we, ha- we haven't actually received any real dividend in the north in terms of you know our economic performance the economy hasn't really improved and i suppose having an all-island business and someone who, who keeps a keen eye in the south the same can't be said for for the south because over the last 25 years i mean the economy in the republic of ireland has has went from strength to strength is would you sort of concur with that observation in, in terms of no real economic benefit as such peace dividend for the north as yet no, that's true. I mean, economists would argue over what's the best measure of standard of living, GDP, GNI, but whichever of them you use, really, Northern uh, Ireland's economy has been very sluggish. And, and the idea of a peace dividend that people talked about a lot in, in the early mid 90s hasn't really come true at all. Um, I suppose to get the opposite in the South, uh, you know, the, all the measures are the economy's done relatively well, obviously, had a terrible crash. Um, in 2007-8, but, but came back you know pretty strongly from it. Uh, obviously, things tough now with COVID, but the underlying economy is strong. Um, but the narrative in Dublin very often leaves out the peace process as part of that. You know, it'll talk about openness to the world economy. It'll talk about the low tax rate or the high numbers of graduates. Um, but I think it's not a coincidence that it really kicked off in the late 1990s too. I think it was that sense of where it's just international business a little bit more confident. You know, the worry that conflict might spill over into the South was, was you know, for the average American or South Korean investor was gone um, to, from their perspective anyway. And um, so I think it, it, it's part of the narrative of why the Southern economy has performed so well. Uh, and the big question is why that hasn't translated into Northern Ireland, you know, why the economy has been so sluggish before, during and after the conflict. I mean, that's a really tough question. Yeah, yeah, uh, it is indeed. So look, today's conversation is all about the subvention. Um, this grant that the UK government has subvention, which they pay every year to basically keep the lights on in Northern Ireland. Um, for me personally, I mean, I, I first sort of talked about this, I think it was around about 2015, I, I was in the company of the then finance minister in Northern Ireland, and we were sort of having an off the record conversation because there, there has been some talk about this, that the subvention for round numbers, call it say 10 billion odd pounds, 
Um, and certainly people from the sort of more nationalist background, Republican background, have been sort of saying, well, actually, it's not really 10 billion, it's it's more like five or six or four. And it sort of got me, you know, I, I own a funding business. I'm interested in, in money and understanding finance because most people don't. And hopefully my understanding is, is, is decent at the moment. But it really got me thinking, John, because, you know, the starting point of, of any uh, United Ireland conversation has to be figuring out, well, you know, what does it actually cost, right? And over the last four years, I've, I've then had the pleasure of meeting another finance minister, and he sort of confirmed that there's a lot of uh, sceptical um, scepticism around the British government figure of 10 odd billion pounds. So you've written this paper in the last um, few weeks, I think it's went public in the last couple of weeks, why the subvention does not matter, Northern Ireland and the all-island economy. So probably to kick this off, would you give me the, the backstory, a bit of context around why you wanted to do the paper, why you thought it was important and your views on this then? Yeah, I mean, I suppose for me, it was really quite sudden upsurge in discussion around United Ireland in a very practical way since Brexit. I mean, chances are we wouldn't be having this discussion in 2014 or 2015 because the listeners wouldn't be interested in it. So United Ireland would have seen something so far into the future. You know, the Good Friday agreements, slow and steady was sort of what everybody was thinking. You know, even people quite strongly nationalists thought, well, let's get the Good Friday agreement bedded down. But then Brexit effectively broke it, uh, changed people's attitudes, um, raised huge questions, especially for the political middle grounds that everybody assumed were broadly speaking pro-union, you know, maybe not big U unionist, but you know, the status quo seemed a far safer option than a big jump into a United Ireland. That was totally understandable. And it was what Brexit has done is it's changed the question a little bit. It's not so much do you want to leave the United Kingdom as maybe the question is, do you want to join the European Union as much as whether you want to join the Republic of Ireland? Um but certainly the discussion in the South, very often you get two sentences into that and somebody says, but what about the 10 billion? You know, how could we possibly afford, you know, that's a big figure for the United Kingdom, uh, for Ireland, uh, even a United Ireland with a bigger economy, that's a fairly serious figure. And the discussion tended to stop there because, yeah, that's a really big figure, it's not practical. Or you, and then you don't get into the detail of why is the Northern economy so weak that it requires, does, does it really require this amount of a bailout every year? Is this how weak it is? Um, what's the money spent on? Does it mean there's a higher standard of living in the North and the South? Um, and so a group of us came together uh, to sort of early, tail end of 2019, 2020, and thought, um, what can we do as academics? Well, we're not saying there should be a border poll. We're not saying how you should vote if there is one. Uh, but we, and we had very different views on that, the people that came together. But we all agreed a referendum like Brexit, where you ask people to vote yes or no, leave or stay, but you don't tell them what's going to happen the following morning after they vote will be an absolute disaster. Whatever the outcome was, whatever the debate went, and the minute the referendum is called, you can't have those discussions because everybody's in campaigning mode. You can't really get people to engage with the level of detail. So you want to do that well in advance when a referendum seeds a bit away. And then you can have that debate on its merits uh, and tease out. So that was our motivation in coming to, to see, well, you know, in the case of my piece on the convention, uh, but other papers on health and welfare and benefits and all sorts. But in the convention it was, how is it made up? What is the real figure? from the point of view of the UK, how much of that would be relevant to United Ireland? Because even if it's real for the UK, it doesn't necessarily mean United Ireland would spend the same amount of money. And so to break down the figure and make it accessible to an audience you know, who was interested in economics and finance, but, but you know, didn't have the capacity or time to, to get into the details. And so that was my aim, I suppose, to, to break down the figure, talk about its relevance to Irish unity, and made it accessible to anyone who's basically interested in politics or business uh, would be able to access it and, and, and help their own thinking along. Well, one of, the, one of the really interesting parts of all of this, as I've started to look into this in the last 12 months myself, and you can correct me here, but it's, it's, in, the, it's in your paper as well, the background to this event in Northern Ireland. Ireland was partitioned in 1921, 1921. And at that time, Belfast was the most successful, the Northeast region part of the island was the most successful um, part of the island um, in terms of industry. And from your paper, you set out that that sort of, uh, for the first 18 years of Northern Ireland, this new state, um, it was in surplus. And around about 1938, actually, was when things started to turn and the British government started to uh, introduce the subvention 
um, they started to fund Northern Ireland. So from 1938 to today then, pretty much is what, 70 or 80 odd years, the British government have been um, providing the subvention to more or less keep the lights on in this place, keep the, keep the place running. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it is. And so, I mean, that's, so there's two issues there. Yeah, I mean, the subvention basically is the public sector deficit for Northern Ireland. It's tax minus expenditure, but crucially also a share of UK central expenditure. So the cost of Whitehall, but also the cost of Trident, the cost of the Foreign Office, the cost of just running the country. Um, so what's Northern Ireland's share of that? So it doesn't all get spent in Northern Ireland. Um, but even using that measure, Northern Ireland say, was by far the most industrialized part of the island of Ireland uh, in the early 20th century. Uh, I mean, Belfast is really the only big industrial sector on the country. So for me, in terms of those people, I suppose, who are pessimistic about the economic future, particularly who may be pessimistic or frustrated by the lack of a peace dividend in Northern Ireland, is my view is it doesn't have to be this way. There's, there's no inherent reason why the six counties of Northern Ireland are more economically disadvantaged than the 26 counties on the other side of the border. I mean, why wouldn't they have an average Irish economic performance? And there was an average Irish economics performance, not exceptional, not, not just Dublin, but Dublin and Leitrim and everything else added up and averaged. There'd be no subvention. You know, Northern Ireland would pay its way. And if it did a bit better than average, it'd be making the contribution or we'd be doing new investments and things, improving public services or investing infrastructure that's badly needed. So because that was the backdrop that there was, you know, there's no inherent reason why this subvention is there, but it is there for a very long time. Um, and it is a fairly substantial amount of money. I mean, my article argues it's not 10 billion by any measure, um, certainly not 10 billion in the context of United Ireland. But nonetheless, Northern Ireland has not reached a balanced budget in any single year since before the Second World War. And that, that's a long stretch of budget deficits in, in, you know, by any measure. It's, it's extremely frustrating for me. Um, because I sort of understand how our economy works. And for me then, the, 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 the way the UK economy works is under this Barnett formula sort of uh, structure. And that, that really means that, you know, I think in the, it's the Office for National Statistics who produce all of this. And I think the interesting thing that you set out here is that, you know, whenever we talk about subventions and, and funding Northern Ireland and the other regions in the UK, it's really an accounting exercise, right? And I mean, I, I own a number of businesses and I, I understand accounting exercises. And that's really, it can be a bit of a gray area then. And just before we get into the, some of the big ticket items in this. So for example, for, for my easy understanding, if there was a war, which there was a war in Iraq, for example, and it cost a billion quid um, to, to do that, uh, carry out that exercise. Uh, typically then with the British government through the ONS, the Office for National Statistics, split that billion pounds equally or proportionally around each of the countries, Scotland, Wales, and England. And the regions of England where they produce separate statistics. So it's, it's more or less per capita. There are some adjustments to that, but I mean, it's essentially per capita. Um, likewise, British government decides to renew the Trident nuclear missiles. You know, cost is obviously paid in reality directly from the Ministry of Defence, but in the, in the accounts, it's just spread evenly. One thing is about, I mean, all economies are, tend to be centralised. You know, Ireland, Dublin economy, is the driver, uh, you know, the east and west coast in the United States, you know, Frankfurt, Berlin, other places in Germany. That's not untypical. But UK economy is very centralised. I mean, according to their, the way they produce their accounts, really only the London region produces a surplus um, and the southeast. Every other region produces a deficit either 10 years out of 10 or 9 years out of 10. So it's quite a centralised economy. Um, and it was beyond the sort of uh, scope of this paper as to whether the UK economy really is that centralised. I mean, is the city of London keeping the lights on in the whole of the United Kingdom? Um, or is it just the way they produce their accounts that they exaggerate the London effect? And in fact, Manchester, Sunderland, Scotland and Wales aren't in deficit as much as the accounts appear. Um, so that's one question. But certainly producing those figures, Northern Ireland still is, uh, generally speaking, the the region of the UK that's most in deficit, um, whether you do it by per capita or share of the economy. So it's, it's part of a pattern that's right throughout, you know, basically except London and the Southeast, but it's the worst uh, worst case of it in terms of persistent deficit using these using this accounting measure. Yeah, so I, I had Seamus McGuinness on the podcast a couple of months ago and to talk about the paper that him and his colleague produced around 
who is better off, people who live in Northern Ireland or people who live in the Republic of Ireland. And it was fascinating the detail that they that they went into in terms of you know demonstrating that you know people in the Republic of Ireland seem to be scoring higher um, across each each of the, the sectors or, or the analysis that they used. Um, but in terms of this subvention, then this every year basically that I think the last the last the figures was 2019. Um, I think we generated maybe 18 and a half billion quid, cost maybe about 28 odd billion to run Northern Ireland, and there's a, a nine and a half uh, billion pound subvention. So that's that's sort of every year this has to be paid. Um, but if you if you break that down, and the big ticket item in there, and I know it's 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 one. Um, that some people are, are questioning is this whole idea of, of pensions and, and and I think it's in a 3.5 billion odd pounds of the subvention is pension payments yeah. and just 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 to break that down so is that for someone who maybe worked in a government job in Belfast or whatever and they're now retired and that pension has to be paid until they die is that is that what that means basically so it's, it's anyone whose address is Northern Ireland um so they don't break down whether they worked in Northern Ireland whether they worked in London or Scotland, but basically they're now in Northern Ireland. That's where the pension address on their bank details is. And so it's, it's the co annual cost of all pensions that are paid to Northern Ireland. And that includes people who were in the, the military, the police, the civil service, teachers, um, because overwhelmingly public sector workers, even though they pay a certain percentage of their salary every month into a pension fund, there isn't actually a pension fund in the way there typically would be in the private sector. I mean, that money is not put away by the treasury, invested in some manner and, and ring-fenced. Um, most uh, Western economies have a pay-as-you-go system. Um, and so basically you're drawing, your pension is coming from this year's taxpayers and your tax while you work paid those pensions. Um, so it isn't legally separated. It comes straight out of the, of the tax base, whether or not you paid into it or whether you were someone uh, in the private sector, you paid social insurance every week or every month of your life, um, but you weren't paying into a pension fund as such, and so you're getting the basic state pension of about £150. Um, so it includes both of those elements. So it's all of the sort of pay-as-you-go systems, whether it's just a straight benefit or whether it's something that you contributed to into a sort of public sector. What you suppose in your head you considered as a pension fund, but, but in reality it was simply put into general taxation on the assumption the same would happen when you were ready to draw your pension, you'd pull it out again. So that's what adds up to the three and a half billion is those two different sorts of pensions. Okay, so so almost a third of the annual subvention is on pension payments, right? And given the fact, I know um, I read Alan Barrett's uh, response, I thought it was a, a fair response um, to your paper, uh, I think in the last couple of days, but yep. um, I mean, if I'm the British government and we get to a point where there's a referendum and we, we let's assume uh, for the purposes of what I'm about to say that there, there is going to be Irish unity in the next 15 years or whatever. And there's this tug of war, horse deal, negotiation about the three and a half billion pound every single year of pension payments. Given the fact, and, and Barrett makes this point that most people accept that there's going to be another referendum on, in Scot on Scottish unity. Um, that's a bit of an unknown entity, and, and if you if you park that part of the question, so two two questions and and one, where did you end up uh, with your analysis then around how that pension liability where that would fall? Was it fifty percent with the Irish new Irish state, or or how did you how did you do that work? So uh, I argue, I mean, there's no legal basis for this. So this, as you put, this will be a tug of war in X years time. Um, it won't be decided in the courts, either European or London or Dublin. So it is a diplomatic, um, you know, the figure is there. And my argument is um, that if there is a referendum on Irish unity and it passes, it'll be done in accordance with British law. So it's not Catalonia. It's not people, you know, running a re referendums that deemed to be illegal. So there's no reason to believe that the British government would approach those negotiations in a totally belligerent manner. On the other hand, they want to look after their own interests. So on day one, they're not going to turn up and say, We'll cover that cost. Sure. The past. But I think uh, what I argued is that what you effectively get is if somebody's you know mid-career and they've twenty years done in the Northern Ireland civil service and they have twenty years to go, um, that essentially they'd have a half a UK pension. So when they get to retirement, uh, they'd have a half a UK pension. 
and the Irish government would be picking up the tab for the 20 years when they worked in United Ireland. Um, and that would effectively be, it would follow where they paid their social contributions. Now, Alan's worry and others who've responded to the article said, well, because it's a pay-as-you-go system, that money wasn't put away over the previous 20 years. The British government's going to say, well, sorry, we spent that money ages ago. Um, why would we pay these pensions? But pensions are different to unemployment benefit. I mean, if you decide to go live in Spain, the British government doesn't send your unemployment benefit to your Spanish bank account. Um, but if you retire, they do. Or in Dublin, um, my, my own partner uh, worked in the UK for a large number of years. Her UK pension was sorted out between the two pension offices seamlessly. She didn't have to get involved. They, the Irish and the UK authorities, look at the contributions she made in the different jurisdictions over the years. Pension lands into the bank account at the end of every month. Um, and so if you had a United Ireland and British government said we're not paying, well, would they stop paying pensions to people from Northern Ireland who went to live in Spain or Dublin? Um, would it matter if you worked in Britain or Northern Ireland? You know, so if you'd worked in London for 40 years and retired to Northern Ireland, would they stop paying your pension? Um, because people would be, everybody in Northern Ireland would be entitled to British citizenship. Probably even if there was a vote for United Ireland, 40 something percent will have voted to stay in the United Kingdom almost inevitably. Um, some will have worked for the British military, for the RUC and the PSNI. You know, imagine how the Daily Telegraph is going to play it if a future British government says, ah, sorry, we're no longer paying pensions to people who fought in the British Army or who were in the RUC, whose colleagues died as they sought in defence of the state. Um, I just don't see that playing out. And so I think it's a question that some of those, I think they wouldn't even argue about. The British government, um, one of the responses thought the British government would probably pay the occupational side of things, but people who you know, didn't have a pension fund as such, but they paid their social insurance every week or every month, they might be left for the new Irish state. But even that has the complications of, well, if you move to Dundalk, will you suddenly get your pension back again? Because if you worked in London and retired to Dundalk, you'd get your pension. If you worked in Belfast and retired in Belfast, under those arguments, you wouldn't. So it's very complicated. I think in reality, we'd probably end up with a negotiation somewhere along a spectrum. Um, but maybe the simplest thing for British government and it's also give them a legacy payment that runs out. Say, for example, the British government said, listen, we're not getting into the detail. That's the responsibility of the Irish government. But in recognition of the fact that there'll be a lot of British citizens in Ireland or the history of the situation, we'll pay two billion a year just into a fund to support peace and keep the economy. Very hard to cut that. You know, in 10 years time, you've been paying two billion a year and suddenly you announce you're going to end it. Inevitably, that's controversial. But if you start paying pensions, the reality of pensions is the figure goes down every year. If you're not taking any new pensioners in, that's the Irish government's responsibility. You know, some of those people will pass on every year. And so the British government knows from day one to save money in the first year of Irish unity, all the stuff that now is responsible for the Irish government, and they'll save more money every year that goes along. And that's why I think pensions is where the British, they wouldn't pay, in. I don't think, into a legacy fund or other things. I think their legacy contribution would be meeting the pension contributions pro rata to the number of years people had paid into the British system. No more than that and no less. And that, that's where uh, I take the argument. But it's based on negotiation rather than law. So, so based on my new knowledge of, of pensions, I actually don't think it's uh, as complicated as some might argue. Um, I understand why, why people um, have responded to your piece about pensions and you know you can't expect the UK and, the, and I've seen Francesca Coelpa maybe responding in that regard but what, what people who don't live in Northern Ireland don't uh, they don't really get this part of it um, regardless of the constitutional outworkings here in the next 30 years people will will continue to be British or Irish or both and I I, I, I look forward to uh, someone um, if in the event of Irish unity who's maybe worked here and is British um, and some economist in Manchester trying to say, well, you know, you, you're not really British, you're actually Irish now, and the Irish will have to pick up that pension tab. So I think there's a, a clear line of sight there, a methodology, and if you said it will be done in line with, with British law. So I think that's a, a workable, actually a workable, um, I don't see that as overly complicated, um, as long as both parties enter into the uh, negotiations in, in good faith which one would hope. This, the second thing I wanted to speak to you about then, because the next big ticket item is 
national debt. And that's coming in annually. We're apportioned 1.6 billion of the national debt. What is the national debt then? And, and how do you see that playing out? So um, because Northern Ireland has run its subventions in 1938, mm. in reality, Northern Ireland hasn't paid a penny towards the UK national debt since 1938. It's an accounting exercise. So, so the Office of National Statistics increases expenditure last year, or 2019, by 1.6 billion. And then they increase income by 1.6 billion. So it balances out. But, you know, if the finance minister in Northern Ireland had already check at the end of the year, you know, they're already in deficit. There is no money left over in Northern Ireland when you look at taxes and expenditure to send to London to repay the national debt. So London has borne this cost since the Second World War, in effect. And so in reality, it's not costing the British taxpayer a single penny more than what they've contributed for years. Um, so for me, there's two reasons why I think um, this is, a, is really not a big issue for United Ireland. Um, one, because you know they haven't paid. But I also think because um, I think it's different to the Scottish case. Um, so Scotland, the Scottish government said we would pay a proportion of the national debt. And the only argument was whether you do it by population or by economy. And so people have quoted that to me, which obviously I knew. Um, but Scotland was different. Scotland didn't have a sovereign debt rating because it wasn't a country. Um, it also needed, at that stage, it needed the UK's vote to join the European Union, which was central to their economic model. Um, so in some ways, they had to, pre-referendum, put up a case that would assist them getting the highest possible uh, rating on their future national debt. And I think being seen to be responsible in terms of national debt um, was part of that narrative and also ensuring the UK wouldn't potentially veto the re-entry uh, to the EU. Obviously, that's now off the agenda. Ireland is a sovereign country. We already have a large national debt and we have a, a credit rating. Um, I mean, the Irish government issued bonds uh, last week with a negative interest rate. So people are will, out there willing to pay the Irish government to mine their money for the next 10 years and give it back to them minus a little bit because we're seeing, you know, we came through a financial crisis and still was controversial in Ireland, but the German bondholders got their money back. And so from the point of view of a debt rating, Ireland is seen as a very safe, you know, conservative small C country. I don't see the rating agencies internationally being the least bit interested in the tussle between London and Dun Dublin on debt. That's first for Scotland, they might. So I can see why the SNP were very cautious there and agreed that they gone debt as well as the EU. I'd, and certainly if the UK walks away from pensions, there's no, there's no Irish government of any political makeup going to agree to pay debt if the UK isn't paying pensions. So in some ways, worst case scenario can only be one or the other um, that you get hung out on. And I think the debt, uh, it's not a huge figure in the greater scheme of things anyway. You have a netting out of assets if you did get into the detail. That's what's happened in other places where countries split up. So you'd have to, what's Northern Ireland's share of the British Library worth? What's our share of the Tate worth? Um, the reality, I don't think civil servants would have any appetite to get the valuers into those situations. They'd just say, you keep the assets in Northern Ireland and you sign a piece of paper saying you don't own anything that isn't in Northern Ireland. And in return, that's what happened in 1925 when the Boundary Commission was agreed, the allocated debt to the Irish Free State was absorbed by the UK because as far as they were concerned, the deal was now done, the border is fixed and we just walk away from the state. Yeah, I, th I think, in, I think in my, my own personal view on, in relation to national debt, it's very topical at the moment around monetary policy and fiscal policy and modern MMT and austerity and that whole. But I, I think, you know, uh, Ireland there would, would be uh, in a kind of hoping that the British government would, would sort of take a view on that. Obviously, they're a, a currency issuer and, you know, national debt, well, you know, they can, they can, they can, so they could deal with that. Um, and it's still back to that point again. It's another number, 1.6 billion a year. It's a big number, but again, it's it's another. Uh, all of this is obviously a negotiation, but it is a bit of a horse deal because there's nothing really to go on. Just hoping that you arrive at a number that the the British side are happy with, and the Irish side are happy with. But I would certainly, if I was advising the Irish side, um, <laughs> I would I would be going hard on you know not taking a lot of that to be honest. That would be my sort of position, based on the fact that the Bank of England and, and the Exchequer can create money, and you know the sovereign fiscal yeah. economy and all of that stuff, right? Um, yes. So, and, and depending on the economic, I mean, ten years ago there was a huge focus internationally on debt to GDP ratios. You know, 
in the Eurozone, really strict measures, not always kept, but nonetheless, there was at least a, a diplomatic penalty to breaching your 3% limit or whatever it was at different times. COVID has washed that out the window. I can't see any significance, but it'll come around in fashion. You know, economics has different focus at different times. At, at this moment in time, debt ratios are not a big issue uh, in terms of international economics, but who knows what the focus will be in the year where these negotiations, you know, British government want, might want to offload some debt and therefore they'll swap current spending for debt or the opposite. Um, but I would think it, it won't be the, I think pensions is the much more yeah, yeah. Uh, complicated discussion. <laughs> I really don't see debt as, as, as being a, a deal stopper at all. I think it's not a bad time actually to be negotiating um, on, on the national debt deal because we are entering into what some are calling the new super cycle of economics where uh, all those ratios are, are out the window. And actually, um, Eric Lonergan referred to austerity as a really bad idea with political undertones. And there, Dario Perkins said to me last week in the podcast that there's uh, austerity, austerity fatigue in Britain right now in the UK and, and with Bidenomics and MMT uh, to the forefront. So this debt isn't overly interesting now for some of these economies. So if you're going to talk about a deal on national debt, it's probably not a bad time in the next five years to cut a deal with the British yeah. government. So if we move on, there's a couple of other things I want to get in because um, this is going on, which is brilliant. But the defence expenditure then is coming in about just under 1.2 billion. And again, another item. So every year, um, 1.14 billion is allocated to Northern Ireland. And much of that is actually in Northern Ireland, do you think? What was your hypothesis uh, for you know, that figure? Yeah, so this is simply the military. So this doesn't include the PSI, prisons, courts. You know, this is purely the allocation of central military expenditure. So only a tiny proportion of that is spent in Northern Ireland. I mean, the cost of keeping uh, Lisburn up and running, the, the tiny numbers, the additional costs of deploying squaddies in and out of Lisbon, it would be tiny. Uh, and put this in context, the entire defense budget of the Irish state only passed 1 billion euros for the first time historically this year. Um, you know, so the notion that the new United Ireland would go from 1 billion to practically 3 billion euros in the first year of Irish unity as a defense budget, you know, it's just not going to happen. That's, I mean, um, I would assume that every individual from Northern Ireland would be given the right to stay in the British military or to, to, to move to the Irish Defense Forces of United Ireland. I mean, imagine that's the way it would be done and they could come across with the same salary and rank and responsibilities that, that you know, if you look at sort of corporate mergers and acquisitions or local authority changes in the public sector, that's generally the way uh, people work. But politically, given the demographic that joins the British military, given the greater promotion opportunities in the British military compared to even an expanded Irish defence, I mean, my assumption would be that very few people would actually choose to move across, that, that most people would stay in the British Army, RAF or, or Navy. And therefore, there wouldn't be an absolute bill you have to meet because 5,000 people decided they want to join the new Ulster Regiment of the Irish Defence Forces, whatever else. So it would just be a question of what do you need to increase? You have a bigger land mass, you have a bit more sea responsibilities, maybe you do something on air power. I don't think it would be, I mean, none of it would be a requirement. I mean, you could simply say, well, okay, we're, we're, we have 50 million to, to keep Lisburn running, but after that, it's all voluntary. Um, so I think that is really purely an accounting exercise because of the much more significant costs of the British military compared to anything a modern uh, United Ireland would do. So that is, that's not even negotiations. That's just simply yeah. a large cost that would not be relevant at all. But I, I think it's quite forensic that you have actually a figure of 1.14 billion um, of defence expenditure for Northern Ireland. Because I, I remember listening to Dan Paisley uh, Jr. before Christmas and he was talking about the defence expenditure. So now we actually have a number. And then once you actually drill in and lift the bonnet into the detail of that actual number, it, it's 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 not beyond the what a man to figure out well what will that actually be in, in the event of a, an all island new yeah. Ireland new constitutional setup so th there's another one where there's plenty of scope um, for negotiation and then the the other one I wanted to mention 765 million pounds every single year is for outside expenditure for example the UK foreign offices all around the world so I mean this would it be fair to say that nearly all of that would relate to everywhere except Northern Ireland yeah, so there will be, um, yeah, so it's it's primarily, it's the UK aid budget, it's the Foreign Office primarily. Um, it, historically, it would have included payments to the European Union. Um, ironically, United Ireland would uh, probably pay a little bit more in the long run for, uh, 
for Northern Ireland if you put it that way because the UK got such a refund through their uh, the Thatcher negotiations that they actually paid less than other member states. But I think it's it's not too far a stretch to assume that the European Commission would have a transition. They're not going to just redo the GDP calculation. They'd want to have a peace fund of some sort. So I think that's not something that would change uh, quickly. The, the EU, for its own reasons, would want to be involved in, in Northern Ireland during a transition. So I'm assuming that would sort of more or less stand still or even be positive. And there's no way new United Ireland would increase its foreign ministry to the scale of the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office. So they're not going to have an embassy in every major city in the world. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Well, so that's that one. And then the final number I wanted to mention to you, because I, I had the finance minister, Conor Murphy, on the podcast in November. And um, I mean, the big item for him and for me and for everybody here is we've no real fiscal uh, autonomy here. We can't borrow money. I see the Republic of Ireland went to the bond market last week and got another over a billion pounds or over allocated. There's international investors queuing up to lend the Republic of Ireland money. We can't do that here. We have to go with the begging bowl to Westminster. Um, and, and ask them for money and they keep saying there is no more money so that's very frustrating for me and, and plenty of people here now who are actually starting to just understand this but you have in the in the the, the paper that the tax revenue you believe could be underestimated for Northern Ireland maybe up to half a billion so so there's 500 odd million pounds um, a, in the subvention uh, which you feel are underestimates of tax revenues is that correct? Yeah, so this has been a debate for more than a decade now at this stage. I mean, the Northern Ireland Council for Voluntary Action, a couple of other companies looked at. The next for this is it's the head office effect. So most large companies with operations throughout the UK will pay their tax in one calculation, uh, corporation tax, capital gains, VAT, from their head office address. And so the Office for National Statistics in the UK therefore allocates that to whatever region their head office is in as income for that region. Um, London is the head office of many more UK-wide companies than Belfast or anywhere in Northern Ireland is. And so it tends for all parts of the UK, it exaggerates how much profit was made in London and diminishes the profit that was made, or VAT, um, or, or capital gains. And there's no way to break that down because the companies themselves don't publish uh, the cost of them at doing so wouldn't make any sense for the individual companies. So we've um, so what people have done is they've calculated it based on the scale of the economy, uh, the scale of the private sector. And if you do that, if you assume that companies, private sector in Northern Ireland is more or less as profitable as the average company elsewhere in the UK, then the tax that's paid in, in VAT, capital gains, corporation tax is about 500 million shy per annum. Um, so it's, it's a back of the envelope calculation. It's an approximation. Everyone accepts there is an underestimation yeah. because, you know, because of the London effect. Um, and it's around that figure, but but it it would be you know almost impossible to to put a closer estimate on it. But it's it's there or thereabouts that's that scale. Um, and obviously in the United Ireland, those companies would have to register uh, with the Irish tax authorities, and therefore we would have the exact calculation of what they're earning in Ireland compared to Scotland or the North of England. Um, and therefore that revenue would flow to a future Irish revenue authority. So so, so regardless of of. Uh... The figure and what the actual figure and, and there is a there is a way of, of working that out clearly and um, that that shouldn't be that hard to do but 500 million pounds every year is a lot of money but the bottom line is that uh, there is a sense that that there is an underestimate of 500 million a year and that's key whenever we're trying to figure out how much it costs or what any likely subvention might be um if we decide to move into a new constitutional arrangement so basically overall then um John, you, you come up to you come up with a figure of two point eight billion would be closer to what the actual subvention might be in, in uh, United yeah. Ireland. Is that correct? Based on today's exchange rates, I think about two point eight billion euros would transfer over, if you like, on day one of United Ireland. That would be the budget deficit you'd be projecting for the following year of the subvention. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose why I've used a slightly provocative title where the subvention does not matter is that's not a huge sum. If you take the all Ireland tax revenues. Um, that you'd need about a 5% boost, a one-off 5% boost in tax revenues to get rid of that without borrowing. Um, and the state obviously has some capacity to borrow in the short term. The Americans or the EU might help in the short run. So I think you certainly wouldn't make a decision as momentous as the constitutional future of United Ireland on the basis of a 5% 
shortage in, in tax revenue on a one-off basis uh, of growth. So um, whereas it, it stops us, the, the figure of 10 billion so often to the media stops people thinking about, well, why is it even 2.8 billion? You know, what is it about the economy in Northern Ireland that has shown such a persistent lack of growth? You know, um, a couple of the figures I use uh, in the article, just to put some context on, I wasn't starting a new article, just trying to put the context is, you know, you had about 1 billion um, tourist revenues in Northern Ireland the last full year before COVID, compared to about 7.5 billion in the South. Um, the, per capita, the FDI investment into the South is probably running five or six times ahead of what Northern Ireland is doing. Um, you know, wages in the South are, uh, Seamus McGinnis has already mentioned, about, about 12% higher, far fewer people on benefits in terms of topping up low-level wages or part-time earning. Um, so if the economy of Northern Ireland, those underlying issues could be fixed, um, not in dramatically reversing what, what's there, but simply looking at what would kick in a 10% growth in the Northern Ireland economy, then Northern Ireland would have a subvention, which is positive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paying one, and therefore fixing the NHS, fixing the infrastructure issues around broadband, roads, rail, uh, you know, increasing benefit levels for those on the lowest levels. Um, so that's what, that's what I'm trying to say, that the figure is, it's not so big that you couldn't even begin to plan how you do it. And But once you say the figure of 10 billion, people stop thinking about, well, why? You know, why are people leaving school so early? You know, really disproportionately high compared to anywhere in Western Europe. Why are the number of university places so small? Why is the skill level you know, not meeting what's required to attract in FDI. Um, those are the issues we need to be talking about, and rather than getting fixated on a figure of 10 billion, which isn't really relevant or real for United Ireland. My, my view is that the economic structure that we find ourselves in here now in Northern Ireland simply is, is not fit for purpose. And regardless of what way this place moves forward over the next 10 to 15 to 20 years, it has to be different and better than what we find ourselves in today. Uh, the Barnet Fund, the, the subvention uh, situation just doesn't work. The big the structural issue for Northern Ireland right now is from the 1st of April 2024, which isn't that far away, corporation tax goes to 24%. And I, I from talking to foreign direct investors, I mean, it's been nearly impossible to entice and encourage uh, FDI up here whilst our friends in Drogheda are, are, are in a 12-odd percent. Why would you go to Newry uh, and pay double in 2024 corporation tax? So the economic structure, it totally needs addressed. I think papers like this, just to explain, this is a peer-reviewed paper. Is that correct, John? And what, is. Does, what does it mean? What does that mean by being peer-reviewed? So um, it's published by the Royal Irish Academy, uh, which is an all-Ireland body. They've, they've kept the royal title from pre-partition dates. It's just the, the nature of the organisation. But it has it's effectively an organisation of academics north and south and all the universities in the island of Ireland. Uh, and they publish a set of academic journals covering a range of issues. Uh, and they decided uh, last year that it, this was such a momentous debate that uh, the direction of research need to focus on this area, which hadn't really been seen as a priority because it seems so far into the future. Well, a peer review means once you write an article, it's sent out uh, to two other people who don't know who you are as an author. You never find out who they are as reviewers. Uh, they're experts in their field and they read it and they say, you know, it's clear here. I, I don't believe a word of this. Where's your evidence for that? So they give you a sort of feedback without knowing whether you're the most junior or the most senior academic in the world and they're just reading the paper as as they see it um and then the academy itself takes a view as to whether it's, it's fit for publication and so um it doesn't mean all academic writing is great or everything is correct but at least it means a couple of people looked at it and said this meets the standard so you're not just one more person on a bar stool with an opinion at least you've been forced to persuade uh, some other academics that you have the evidence to stand over the argument you're making um and then if somebody else disagrees with it, it's up to them to write another piece and say, you know, also in the public domain as to why I've misinterpreted my evidence or of the wrong evidence. Um, so it gives it a certain sense that at least, uh, you know, academics who are interested in this area think this is something that need, that's of the standard and go into the public domain and then let people make of it what they wish thereafter. But the evidence stacks up in that sort of, that's what's meant by peer reviewed. Um, I think we made a particular decision on this that would all be, they're all open access so all of our articles it's ria.ie um you can find the articles there and there's no charge anyone can read any of them 
Excellent. I think I think it's uh, the most really important part of our conversation here, and I think it's it's the opposite to the Brexit conversation, um, in that there there seemed to be a lack of information, full stop. And then certainly I didn't read any peer reviewed papers on on Brexit, and um, I've read two or three uh, on this constitutional United Ireland conversation. I want to commend you for your work, John. I know you're you're on Twitter. Um, I would encourage people to download the report. You could read it in half an hour. It's it's fascinating. I mean, it's, it's a big deal that if the actual subvention is, is two, three, four or five billion as opposed to 10 billion, that's really, really important. Um, just wanted to, to sum up by saying that um, the Hoopner report, which was out in 2016, basically said over the first eight, eight years of an all-island economy, United Ireland, there would be a 35 billion um, positive swing. And all of the economic arguments to me stand over, stack up and would, would concur with uh, from an economic standpoint, it makes a lot of sense to be having these conversations around changing the economic structure of, of Northern Ireland. Is that a, a, an arrival point or a, a landing zone where you, you've sort of got to, or are you still trying to figure this out? What's your view on, on how we should move forward? Yeah, so, so that's exactly it. So my, I suppose my conclusion, my argument is the subvention is not so large that it seems impossible to think about or, or, or deal with in a, in a short to medium phase. It's, a, it's of a scale. You know, even if some of the issues on pensions, the rich government play a bit more hardball, the Irish government agrees to pay a bit more just to get away and get on with their lives, it's still within a scale that's manageable easily. I say, oh, the economic modelling suggests a positive impact. I mean, Dublin is very congested now with the economy. Rent prices are up, housing is up. So, but yet that isn't spilling over into Newry or Banbridge or or Belfast at the, or Derry at the moment. So, I think in a in a single regulatory framework with a single tax system a single sort of supply of, of graduates there's no reason to believe that that positive sort of economic spillover uh south and north can't happen at a scale more than enough to leave the subvention and for me the debate needs to move on to that what would be the policies that would facilitate that that would get the maximum benefit and also deal with the other issues like health and housing and benefit levels that people want to address in northern ireland and elsewhere So according to John Doyle, the director of DCU Institute for International Conflict Resolution and Reconstruction, after nine months of due diligence and forensic investigations into what the actual subvention, what the actual cost of Northern Ireland might be to a new constitutional arrangement on the island of Ireland, it won't be nine and a half or ten odd billion. According to John and his team and his new peer, reviewed paper, peer reviewed paper, it's going to be closer to three billion. <laughs> There's a bit of a difference in three odd billion pounds and ten odd billion pounds. And look, I really enjoyed that conversation. I thought it was fascinating. The big ticket items there in the subvention is obviously, you know, pensions three and a half billion pounds every single year. It's nearly a third of what the, the British side are saying um, is the makeup of, of the total subvention. You've other items there like national debt, the defence expenditure, the outside expenditure for the British foreign offices all around the world, and then the underestimation of the actual tax revenues. Um, funny enough, they seem to have um, underestimated that by some 500 odd million pounds. What a surprise. But anyway, look, John makes a very compelling case, and I think that it's a very worthwhile exercise. I would really encourage people to read John's paper, it's 22 odd pages, genuinely you could read it in half an hour and what I really liked about John's piece of work on this is that it's really easy to understand and I think the peer-reviewed nature of the paper is critical and key to any of these discussions that we have about Irish unity. One of the big problems that we have right now living in this world that we live in is what's real, what's not real, fake news, you know, it's, it's just dominating politics, it's dominating finance, it's, it's dominating economics. And I think it's really important that people like John are passionate enough to actually try and, and find real information, factual information, and then are genuine enough to put it forward for peer review and he explained the peer review process. So I think he's playing a, a really important role and I'm looking forward to reading more peer reviewed papers on this Irish unity debate. Finally, to close, here, here's my view on this um, in relation to 
the subvention for Northern Ireland. There's two ways of looking at this. If you are someone who believes in Irish unity, if you are someone who believes that an all-island economy is the way to go, if, if that's what your preference is, then by hearing uh, and buying into this whole idea that the subvention is closer to three billion, then that's going to be good news for you because your argument will be, well look, we told you actually, um, it's not 10 billion, it's three, there's a hell of a difference. And if you look at the Hubner report, the Canadian uh, accountant who did this report in 2016, it's one of the only economic papers that has been written about Irish unity. Well, over the first eight years of any uh, Irish reunification, there's a 35 billion euro net positive swing to this all-island economy. So based on that alone, then you can clearly see that actually um, this subvention figure is not all that important. Okay, so if you are an advocate of Irish unity, then that's probably the position that you might take moving forward, and that's fine. However, if you're someone who is going to be arguing for the union in this discussion, and the good news is I have finally found uh, someone in political unionism who's prepared to speak to me on Money and Plants, so I'm excited about that. Um, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but he's quite high profile, and I think and hope he understands economics and, and money and finance. But uh, it is a male, and, and they have told me that they're coming onto the show in the next couple of weeks, and I'm sure that they, they will pick up on what I'm about to say. Because if you are someone who uh, would prefer to stay uh, that Northern Ireland remains within the United Kingdom, then you could also be rubbing your hands saying, you see, I told you so, Northern Ireland is not as insolvent as everybody has been saying. You know, if the subvention is only three odd billion pounds, then, you know, that's, that's good news. It's not 10 billion. But here's the challenge. And here is the challenge for anyone who wants to take that up with me or anyone else. What is your plan? And the problem for Northern Ireland and the economic structure that we find ourselves in is that it's not fit for purpose. So regardless of what the subvention is, this economic structure that Northern Ireland is working within right now, within this Barnett formula, is totally flawed. It doesn't work, it won't work, and what I'm hoping is anyone who's going to be coming out in the next year or two who is going to be making this argument for the Union, and I, I, I want to hear the economic argument to remain in the United Kingdom, because I haven't heard it. I have asked lots of people around um, what their view is, what is the plan, how can we compete, how can we grow our economy. We know and we've heard from John again that Northern Ireland is still the poorest performing region in the UK. You know, the economic indicators for Northern Ireland are so poor, um, right across the board. So we need, and that's why hopefully I'm, I'm, I'll get this interview done in the next couple of weeks because it ties in nicely, nicely with this conversation. But I'm looking forward to hearing what this case, the economic case is, for Northern Ireland to remain in the Union. But look, that's the two sides of this lower subvention figure. I think both sides of the argument um, will be happy with the potential outcome here. Um, but let's see. Look, that's the podcast this week. I really hope you enjoyed it. Do me a favour, let me know. Send me a WhatsApp message, connor at connordivine.com. I hope you enjoy it. Final two things as ever, leave me a review wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, if you think there's someone else that you know, one or two other people who might be interested in this, send them a link to the podcast. That's all from me. Have a great weekend. Look after yourself and each other.